Hey, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Vineyard Northwest. Super glad to see you all here this morning. My name is Wilson Cochran. I'm on staff here at the Adult Ministry. And uh, yeah, a warm welcome to you. Really glad that you're here this morning. We really, uh, uh, the focus of this church is to be a place that hosts God's presence and that, that um, is a place where His presence is welcome to lead us and do what He wants. So we just hope that as you're here today, your heart is touched by His presence and that you leave changed by that. Um, if this is your first time, a special welcome to you. Really glad that you're here. We actually have a gift for you out in the atrium. A little welcome packet has a free CD in it, as well as a couple other things to help you get to know us better. Um, so stop by that after the service. It's the Connect kiosk. In addition to that, if this is your first time or you've just never done this before, if you could fill out the Connect card in the seat back pocket in front of you, that's, that's really helpful for us just to get to know you better and how to serve you and who all is uh, hanging out with us here. So at this point, I want to direct your attention to your programs. I have a couple of announcements to tell you about, and then we're going to jump into the service. We have a cool service this morning. It's going to be a little different than normal. We'll actually have a panel of uh, the, teaching, the teaching pastors here answering some questions we've been fielding over the past several weeks. But first, we've got some announcements for you. The first one is that today at 1 p.m., we have our pastor's lunch. So the pastor's lunch is in the multi-purpose room. This is like kind of right behind the stage back here in the West hallway. And the pastor's lunch is a time to come and meet the staff, uh, get a free meal, and just hear a little bit about the vision and direction of this church. I'd really encourage you to come and hang out with us. We'd love to see you there. There's going to be some fun games too, so it's going to be good. All right. Three things I want to tell you guys about. The first thing is Zimbabwe. Last year, we sent a a team of four of us went over to Zimbabwe. For the past several years, um, this vineyard, in conjunction with two other vineyards, have been part of planting a vineyard in Zimbabwe. Well, last year, my dad, who's uh, Van, the the lead pastor here, Luke, another guy on staff in the adult ministry, and then Sanjay Nelson, who's also on staff of the church, all four of us went to Zimbabwe to uh, train them and teach them on our house group model. Now, house group is the young adult ministry of this church. And uh, since, since we went there, the teaching has really taken root. They've started three new groups. So now they have five groups around the capital city of Harare in Zimbabwe. So it's, it's really um, grabbing hold there. And they've actually asked us, hey, can you send another team back this year to train us and encourage us and just to impart more of the stuff you guys have learned to us? So it's really cool. We're sending six people um, here in the, in the first couple weeks of October to Zimbabwe. A team of six of us are going, myself, my wife, Luke is going again, and then Micah and Derry Turnbow, their, their siblings, Derry leads worship a lot, and then Aaron Ross, the guy who's helped, uh, who leads house groups and is a, is a core, core young adult leader at this church. So what we're ask, how, how we're asking you guys to partner with us is to partner with us in prayer and financially. Like this stuff, the success of this really is dependent on all of our prayers. It's going into a heavy spiritual atmosphere and climate. And so your guys' prayers really make a huge difference. In addition to that, we couldn't do this without your guys' support financially. Um, My dad's going to come up right now and tell you about one of the ways you can partner. But just to give you an overview, the whole trip is going to cost about $20,000. And we're asking, or the church has asked us, the people that are going on the trip, to raise half of those funds ourselves. So each team member is raising about $1,600. And then you guys are going to raise the other $10,000. How's that sound? So... We actually got 5000 in last week. That was amazing. Um, we're just halfway there. If you guys want to keep giving, that's so cool. And the, the honest truth is, is that everybody can't grow. Everybody can't go on this trip. 
I wish that all of us could go at once, right? But by sowing into it and by partnering financially, you're getting to really sow into the trip. You know, my uh, brother-in-law this week gave Jen and I a check supporting us for the trip. And he said, Wilson, like um, Jessica and I, his wife, we've been blessed to be a blessing. We know that the blessing in our life is so that we can pay it forward to others. And beyond that, we have a one-year-old daughter. We're both in the army. We can't just take two weeks to go to Zimbabwe and, uh, and train these people like you guys are available to. So we're really getting to be part of the trip by giving you. He just wanted to share his heart with me. I thought, man, that's so true. We're blessed to be a blessing. And by giving, we're getting to partner with the trip. So Van, why don't you come up and tell us about uh, another opportunity for this trip, how we can participate. Okay, thanks, Will. Uh, morning, everyone. Um, yeah, I'm excited about this because it's something that's already happening. Wilson, I think, may have alluded to this, but we're not just sending a team overseas to go do something and, 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 and check something out. We're sending a team to build on what's already established. And uh, this budding move of God really has the potential to rock the, the whole nation of Zimbabwe. And, uh, and we as a church get to be part of that. So that's pretty exciting. Um, in a lot of our special services, you'll notice we have prophetic art. And many of you have been here when we've had artists uh, on, on each side of the stage uh, painting during the service. And what prophetic art is, uh, the, the painter is trying to sense what message God has either for an individual in the church or for the church body. And so they paint, then a, a, they produce a painting that represents that kind of prophetic word. And um, when they do that, they have uh, some options as to what they're going to do with their painting. One of the options is they can give it away. They can give it to a person. Like they, they look out and they say, I think this is for you, you know, right there. And, and I want to bless you with this. And they give it away. Another option is they can keep it themselves. Uh, or, or they can give it to the church. And you'll notice the paintings that we have on the walls around the hallways, around the auditorium. But um, if they keep it, then they can do whatever they want to with it. And, um, and, and some of them are paintings that people would want to buy. So they're free to sell them or whatever because it's their, their painting. Well, we have uh, one of our artists um, who has uh, decided that she would like to sell the painting and donate the money then to the Zimbabwe trip. So Susan Rodebush uh, produced this uh, prophetic painting, the title of which, can we put it up on the screen right now? Okay, there it is. Um, it's beautiful. It uh, has a message to it. The title is, The Potential for the Rainbow is Always Present in the Storm. And the, she gave a verse to it, 2 Corinthians 1.20. says, All the promises of God are answered with a resounding yes through Christ and through Christ we shout, let it be, all to God's glory. So, um, what we're going to do is have a silent auction for this painting. And, and really, th this is not the kind of thing we've done as a church. Um, like, if you have a used car you want to sell and donate to the church, we're not going to help you out with that, okay? <laughs> you sell your used car yourself, and then we'll, you, know, you can give the money to, the, to, the, to some mission or something. But uh, this was produced as part of a worship service, and so we felt like it was really appropriate to offer this to our worshipers and, and see who would like to, to purchase this. And so here's what you do. Uh, you can go out and look at the painting in the atrium. Um, it's out there. This is a silent auction, so there are forms there for you to fill out, put it in the envelope, 
drop it in the box, and then the highest bidder um, gets the painting. And what you put, what you what you what you give for it, will go towards the trip towards Zimbabwe. Okay. Now we all can't buy that painting. All right. But we all can give to this, okay? So, um, so l- let's give generously, just as you did last week, and let's send these guys down there and, and rock this nation of Zimbabwe together, okay? Sound good? All right. Take it away, Will. All right. Last thing to say about that, you can give online for the Zimbabwe trip. You can give through the app. You can make checks out. You can give cash. Just make sure you write on it for the Zimbabwe trip on the memo line or on the envelope, however you do it. And yeah, these are gifts that are above and beyond our normal giving, so... All right, last two things I want to say. We have our School of Kingdom Ministry starting tonight. So uh, there's, yeah, there's two years of School of Kingdom Ministry. There's a first year and a second year. Um, the first year is amazing. If you've never done it, you can, it's not too late. Feel free to come tonight, grab an application on your way out. Come tonight and just check it out. No, um, no strings attached. You're welcome to come and just attend tonight, see what you think of it. And then if it's something you want to dive into, we can talk about it and figure it out. But uh, the second year program is really awesome. Van and Luke are the two head leaders of it. It's, uh, we're kind of revamping it this year. I lead the first year. But um, we're revamping it this year so there's more identity teaching plugged in, more activations. But then also the real emphasis on calling and leadership and um, the five-fold ministry and how to uh, really explore how God has wired you to bless the church and to bless the world. So School of King Ministry is awesome. Starts tonight at 530. If you're interested, come check it out tonight. I really encourage you to. Uh, last thing I want to announce, we have a new uh, message series starting in the fall. September 25th, we're going to start a message series called Developing a Prophetic Culture. And in conjunction with the Sunday series, we'll have Wednesday night meetings from 6.30 to 8.30, where we will break into smaller groups, study a passage of the Bible, um, spend some time worshiping, and then spend some time getting to pray for one another and do some uh, like Holy Spirit-type ministry. So this is going to be really awesome. I'd uh, encourage you, like this is a time to bring friends to uh, get plugged in, or if you just have never been involved in a smaller group in this church, if Sunday morning has been the only thing you've ever been a part of, man, there's so much more to uh, our relationship with God when we get plugged in with small groups in community and our growth just, it just shoots up and it's just, it's just, it's just radical how we grow. So I really encourage you to be a part of that. It's going to be awesome. Last thing I'm going to say before Van and Luke and Dave come up to do the, the panel is that if you want to get, we're, we're going to take the giving, um, we'll have the giving part of the service after, right, right before worship, after the message. If you want to give, there's a couple different ways to do that. You can give online, you can make checks available to your Northwest, you can use the envelopes in front of you, or you can drop in any of the two boxes in the back. So that's how that works at this point. I'm going to welcome Van and Dave and Luke to come on up. So who's cheering for the Steelers today? (laughs) I don't know, the Steelers looked pretty good last week, I'm just saying. I just want you all to know, I raised him better than that. All right. So we are going to... um, uh, introduce ourselves, then we're going to answer some questions. Uh, if you have a, an, a, a supplemental question to one of the things that's shared here, you can send that to us by 
going to the Vineyard app, there's a little icon for questions. And if we have time, we'll get to it. If not, uh, we're trying to figure out another way to answer some of the questions that we um, haven't uh, had the time to answer yet. So, that makes sense? All right. So let's pray. Now, let's first, let's introduce ourselves. I'm Van. I'm the lead pastor here. I'm Wilson. I'm Dave. I'm the executive pastor here. I'm Luke. I work on staff with young adults. All right. So uh, kind of join me in prayer here. Uh, Father, we're here because we want to know you better. We want to experience your presence. We want to worship you. We want to live our lives to honor you. And we want to be used by you to, to draw others into your life and into relationship with you. And so we ask you to lead us now as we discuss some of these questions that, um, that uh, sometimes are real sticking points for people. But Lord, give us wisdom and grace as we do this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So the first question we're going to have come up on the screen. I have a little trouble reconciling the first few verses of Acts 5 with the God, with God being a God of forgiveness and grace. Can you explain why these people dropped dead in front of the congregation because they lied? All right? That's a pretty tough uh, scene, isn't it? Yeah. Starting with an easy question, you know. <laughs> yeah. This is Christianity 101. <laughs> All right. So, uh, background. Uh, for, for this passage. This is in Acts chapter 5. And the background is this, that this is shortly after the day of Pentecost. Uh, there, it's not, not, it hasn't been years. It's probably more like weeks since Pentecost. And the day of Pentecost was a major Jewish holiday where there were Jews from all around the world uh, that, that would, within reason, that would uh, travel to Jerusalem to be part of this celebration. So there are tens of thousands of extra people in the city of Jerusalem for the, the uh, Feast of Pentecost. And it was on Pentecost that God sent the Holy Spirit to uh, fill believers for the first time in history, people that trusted God, believers in the Messiah, were actually filled with God's presence, with the Holy Spirit. And in that filling, there was a union that developed that was the formation of the church itself. And so the church formed on the day of Pentecost. And um, Peter, uh, the Apostle Peter on that day preached a message. And, and there were thousands of people that, that got saved, that came to that accepted Jesus on that very day. And then in the subsequent days and weeks that followed, there were thousands and thousands more that were saved. But in that initial thrust of the presentation of the gospel, thousands of these people that were saved were the travelers from other countries. They, they were the, the ones that had come to Jerusalem. Uh, like this, this would be kind of like a lifetime trip. You know, like you might have the vision of having, making a lifetime trip to Europe. Or, or, some, or to Hawaii or something like that. That's what this would have been for these people. And so they came and they get saved. They, they meet the Messiah and they didn't want to go home. But they ran out of money because they had budgets. 
And so you have thousands of people that are now attached to this new budding, this infant church who had no means of visible support. And, and so the church rose up and in, a, in an act of great generosity, it even says that everyone considered nothing as his own, but everything. And what that means is not, not uh, like a, not, not like a communism type of a thing. It just means that nobody viewed anything selfishly that they were all willing to give in order to provide food and shelter for the, the people that were in Jerusalem without any means of support. And so what happened was this man named Joseph sold a piece of ground and he gave the money to the apostles to use to feed the hungry people. And the apostles were so impressed by this and by other things about Joseph's life, apparently, that they gave him a new name. They named him Barnabas, which is son of encouragement. And by doing that, they, 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 they were holding Joseph Barnabas now up as a man to be admired, as a man to be honored, as, uh, as really a leader in this new infant church. And so this other couple, Ananias and Sapphira, they see that. And they decide they're going to do something to gain some honor and notoriety and prestige and position in the church. And so... They sell a piece of property themselves, but they hold a chunk of the money back, but they don't want to admit that because that would make them look like a little bit less than really generous. And so they go and they present it to the apostles as if it's everything, you know, like they're being generous, just giving it all away. But that wasn't true. It was a lie. And so what happens is Peter discerns that through a word of knowledge or discernment. He knows they're lying. And he gives us a clue as to the, the, the understanding of the whole thing when he says to them, why have you allowed Satan to fill your heart so that you would lie to the Holy Spirit? Now, when he asks that question, why, the form of the question is through what means? Kind of like, how did this happen? Have you ever seen a movie where they're like a team of people and one of them betrays the rest of the team? You ever seen that movie? You've seen those? There are thousands of them. Come on. Have you seen those movies? Yes. Thank you. I really need interaction, okay? Okay. If I ask you, you've got you to respond. Okay. You've seen those movies. Thank you. Thank you, Will. Yes, I feel better now. Um, and oftentimes what they'll say to the to the to the uh, Uh, to the person that has betrayed them, they'll say, well, how much did they pay you? You know, what did they offer you to get you to do this? That's what he's asking him. When he asked this, what did it take for you to partner with Satan in order to bring about this deceit? And so the actual thing that's happening here is Satan has worked through Ananias and Sapphira to try to disrupt the formation of this brand new church. He wants to get some leaders in at the top who are, who are deceitful and, and who are liars because he knows if you can get that person in leadership, it destroys everything. And so it's, a, it's an all-out attack against the church that he's trying to get his people in, in this role. And, um, and, and a couple of things. First of all, they didn't die in front of the congregation. It's not like it was a church service and bam, they died. It was in a room alone with Peter that they died. And 
Secondly, it doesn't say God killed them. It doesn't say that. Now, that leaves me with two options to explain it. One is that Satan uses people and he uses them up. He chews them up and he spits them out. He throws them aside. He destroys their lives. And so in this case, depending upon how strong a grip there was, how strong a connection there was between Ananias and Sapphira and Satan, that it's possible that when, when he left, I mean, his plan's been uncovered, it's foiled, so Satan's pulling out now, that in the process of that, he just killed them both. That's possible. Now, the other answer would be that God was so committed to this new church and so committed to this infant move of God and this infant church that God killed them. And that he took them out because he couldn't allow them to disrupt at that foundational moment the church body. And that would have been an act of love just like any father that would defend his family. Just like, like any parent that would defend their family against an invader. And so if that's the case, then you might say, well, why? he could have just exposed them. Well, let me ask you, have you ever dealt with someone who is a liar at the core? You can't expose them. Because they just keep lying. And this couple, if they had just been exposed and, okay, we reject your gift, you're liars, get out of here. They would have gone out of there and they would have immediately started pleading their case to other people. Can you believe what Peter said to us? We went to give this gift in generosity and he called us liars. And they would have gathered a group of people to themselves. And it would have divided that infant church right at the foundational moment. And God couldn't let that happen. Now, um, we want to remember this. Ezekiel 18, God says, do I find any pleasure in the death of the wicked? And the answer is no, I don't. So God finds no pleasure in the death of the wicked. It didn't go, if, if God did this, it did not give God pleasure to do it. All right? So I hope that, I hope that uh, suffices as an answer for that. Will, take it away. Awesome. It was really helpful. All right, next question. A friend once told me I should try to make peace with my MS as a starting point for my healing. I said no, I hadn't, and that I didn't like the disease and didn't believe God did either. She got angry when I said that, like I was rejecting her. Why did she get so angry? Should we make peace with our illnesses? Man, this is a great question. This is something that I think is so important to speak to in Christianity because the moment we accept sickness, we have just taken away the power of the cross. We've neutered the church of the power that God has actually given us to grow and destroy the works of the devil. See, all sickness is a result of the fall. You know, all sickness is a result of man's fall into sin. And when, when we accept it at a level, we're just ex- if we say, okay, this is something God's doing in my life, I need to accept it, blah, 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 we're just totally misunderstanding the kingdom of God. It's a total mis- mistake and distortion of what God's nature and how the kingdom operates. Um, in Matthew 6, Paul is exhorting his apostles, or Jesus is exhorting his apostles how to pray. They ask, how do we pray? And he said, pray like this. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So he says, your kingdom come, your will be done. That's just repeating the same phrase. You know, in a king's domain, what his will is what's done on earth as it is in heaven. So is there sickness in heaven? Are there broken legs in heaven? Right? I sure hope not. Um, 
so we we know that we can't accept we don't as as born again believers we don't want to accept anything and tolerate anything that's not happening in heaven. Our commission is to bring heaven to earth, to let to welcome the kingdom of God to come here to earth. And there's another kingdom operating, the kingdom of darkness, and and that that Satan's kingdom. He does breed um, you know sickness and, and and pain and stuff like that. And so it's our job, the authority has been given to us to go out and to take, take that away, to pray for the sick, to pray for them to be healed. And so making peace, if you guys know, you guys know what the Stockholm syndrome is? Well, that is when people have Stockholm syndrome. It's like where someone's kidnapped and they make friends or they're captor eventually. And they're kind of like tricking themselves into believing that their kidnapper loves them or their, their abuser loves them. This is a coping mechanism. This is what someone does when they don't know how to process the events that are transpiring. And the only way they can think to make sense of what's happening is this must be good. And I'm going to, I'm going to, it's something your brain does. I'm going to turn this around to be good. If we understand the kingdom, we won't be Stockholm. We won't have Stockholm syndrome to our sickness. Okay. When you understand the kingdom, you read verses like this, Matthew nine, it says, and Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. He proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom and then he demonstrated, healing every disease and every affliction. Proclaimed the kingdom and then he demonstrated. So we know that we can't make peace. We can't, um, you know, like say, okay, well, this is God's will. This is happening to me. And something that might kind of come along with that is this other question. Um, there seems to be a difference between embracing a bad life situation and accepting that maybe God has a higher purpose for the larger situation. I think the heart of that basically is saying, like, does God cause bad things in my life for a greater reason? No. God doesn't need to use the devil's means, okay, to get his ends. He doesn't need to do something bad to us to teach us a lesson. We never saw that. We never saw that. Yeah, let's just clap. Woo! <clears throat> We never saw that in the life of Jesus. There's no one that Jesus came to and said, I'll come back next week, and if you've grown in patience, I'll heal you of leprosy. Right? Like, that never happened. He healed everybody right off the bat. So the, the truth behind that, though, is that God will use everything in our life. God won't let Satan get the last word on anything in our life. Even the bad things that happen to us, God will redeem and turn for good. Now, we've got to stop ourselves and not think, if God's going to use it for good, that means God's doing it. No, God's going to redeem the bad thing to make it good. All things work together for our good. That's the, that's the redemption of the gospel. That's the redemption of the cross. Is that nothing bad that happens to us will, will end that way when we submit to God and we trust him. All right. All right, we're ready for question number three. Are there a lot of conditions to receive healing? Do we have to search our family histories in order to break curses from previous generations? Or do we have to be really desperate and pray really, really hard to be healed? <laughs> healing really is complex. The physical, the emotional, the spiritual, relational are all interrelated. And one area may affect another area. For example, if there's an emotional wound or if there's some unforgiveness that's there, it may show up in a physical condition. And once that emotional wound is dealt with, there can be healing emotionally but also physically. Now, that can occur at times. That's not always. And I'll explain more about that later. 
the demonic realm, as we've been hearing, is really waging war against God. There is a clash of kingdoms. The whole Bible is a biblical story of, of the two kingdoms clashing. And within the Old Testament, God is setting out some instructions around Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, talking about a lifestyle of how people can relate to each other. And in one of those sections of, of Scripture, there are some instructions to stay away from the power sources that are not of God, to stay away from sinful behavior because pursuing after those sinful behaviors, lifestyles, pursuing false power sources are going to get people into trouble. And it's going to have an effect throughout the generations. There can be curses that can be passed on through generation to generation. The good news is curses are defeated at the cross. The power of, of Jesus dying on the cross and resurrecting cancels the effects of those curses. But Satan will still try to bluff us into thinking that their power uh, still holds us. So I'll explain that, how it can walk out through a, a family influence or harassment. One is through modeling behavior. Is that someone in a family can model the, the things that great-grandma did or, or grandpa did or dad did. Like, for example, if grandpa had a problem with his temper, dad may have an anger problem, or as a, as a son, I may have that, or as a daughter. What is happening there is that we've seen this lifestyle modeled for us, and we, we go on to imitate that just by watching not only can we model that behavior or learn that model behavior, again, this can be broken. The power of Jesus breaks that, but walking out what we've seen modeled for us can be a form of harassment that Satan will use for us. One of the biggest lies Satan uses against us is that he knows everything. That's a lie. He's actually a very observant watcher of human behavior. We give him enough Material in our daily lives that he can use against us. So if I'm discouraged and struggling, or if I'm saying, oh, I'm, I'm worthless, or fill in the blank of any negative statement, he will just say, well, this is what Dave goes to, or Susie goes to whenever he or she's discouraged. And so I'm just going to keep putting that out there. He's, he's not original. Satan's not original. So it's not only the, the model of behavior that we've observed, there are also uh, belief systems that we buy into. There could be generational lies that can influence us. Another thing, generational lies are those beliefs, those things that are told to us, said over and over to us about life, how to do life, how to relate to uh, poverty or abundance in life, how we relate to people different from us. And those belief systems, those lies can just become very ingrained. And Satan will just energize that by reminding us of, hey, this is what you always go to. An example from my own life is that years ago I was in a period of time of just struggling, trying to make some decisions, fighting some discouragement, and I shared it with a family member. And that family member says, you're just like your brother. That was my stepbrother. The same relative had also said to that stepbrother at one point in time, you're just like your dad. His dad struggled with alcohol addiction, had made some very poor lifestyle choices. And so my brother, stepbrother, was going down that same path, again, watching what had happened uh, within his family. When I heard that, I mean, it just gripped my heart. And it's like, wow, 
And I wrestled with that. But the truth of how I became free in that was realizing, wow, that's a lie. I believe in a lie if that is the case, because I'm not like my brother. I have different gifts. I have different abilities. I have different talents. And no, I'm not like my brother. And so I'm, I'm putting that away. It says the recognizing that truth that Jesus has set me free and walking out that truth daily in my thinking and in my own lifestyle and rejecting lives brings freedom. And the advantage of having people around us to pray with us, it just helps remind us of the truth. It's like, hey, Dave, believe the truth here. It's an encouragement for each other that we can give to believe and walk in truth. One of the dangers that can happen is that if we start researching our family backgrounds, and, and I'm into history and understanding things, but one of the dangers that can happen with just going so deep in research is that we can become confused, we can become distracted. Actually doing the in-depth introspection can be a distraction that the evil one can use against us. I have a counseling background, so I'm all in favor of if, if something's coming up in our lives, let's sit down, unpack it, talk through it, and receive healing. But the difference is, is that when God is working healing in a person's life, God's going to be the one that surfaces it. I don't have to go and try to dig it out. God is going to raise it up so he will address it, and that's part of his goodness. And, and really staying away from just doing the deep introspection uh, because it is a distraction. Okay, thanks, Dave. On to the next question. During the last election, someone told me they had read a prophecy in a newsletter about the outcome of the election that didn't happen. This seemed like manipulation. How can we respond to things like this? Oh, man, politics. So I'll just take a deep breath. Whew, okay. First thing I want to say about this is... Although the idea of, well, actually the very first thing I want to say, for anyone who might not be familiar with the term prophecy or prophetic, what we're talking about when we say that is this, what Jesus is saying to us in the now, right now in this moment. Prophetic ministry happens when one believer hears from God and shares it with another believer. And it's not what God had said in the past, it's what God is saying right now. That's the essence of prophetic gifting. And so, as I'm thinking about this question, can we get, can God tell us who's going to win an election? That is strange to me. I don't know anyone close to me who's ever done that. But I don't think I want to sit up here and say God will never do that. Because I have found that every time that I put God in a box, he tends to break that box wide open. Okay? <laughs> So I've kind of learned, I've tried to put him in many boxes. He is specializes in getting out of my boxes. <laughs> I've learned that I don't want to say that, but it is strange to me. And for a number of reasons. First, when we read in 1 Corinthians 14, where Paul is talking about the purpose of New Testament prophecy, he says that when one prophesies, they speak to encourage, strengthen, and comfort. So the result of a prophetic word should be encouragement, comfort, and strengthening. If I were to tell you all, hey, God told me to vote for this person, then I don't know if either of those three things would result in your life. In fact, for any of you who maybe didn't want to vote the way I wanted to vote, you'd be like, well, shoot, either I got to 
vote for disagree with God or vote for someone I don't believe in, you know? And so right off the bat, we see that, that kind of a prophetic word is not really hitting on the essence of what Paul talks about in New Testament prophecy. Second thing I want to say is that the Bible says we, in 1 Corinthians 13, we prophesy in part. In part as opposed to in whole. So if you imagine like a puzzle being put together, when we prophesy, we can see what God is saying. We can see those individual pieces. We can see them starting to come together, but we don't get the entire picture when we hear from God. And we're not going to, we're not going to, prophesy with 100% accuracy. We're not going to be able to totally always definitely know we're hearing the voice of God until we get up to heaven. And we can grow in it. We can get more pieces as we grow in hearing God's voice, but we're never going to have the whole, we prophesy in part. We don't prophesy in whole. And so what that means is that sometimes we think we're hearing God when really we aren't. And other times we don't think something is God Actually, it was. And I think we can all identify with that feeling. So I bring that up to say, I don't know how this prophetic word was delivered about the election. I don't know if they said, hey, I'm sensing that God might be leaning in favor of this candidate. My guess is that it wasn't phrased in that way because the person said it felt like manipulation. My guess is it was something like, God told me this person's getting elected. Or, thus saith the Lord, this person is getting elected. And since we prophesy in part, we shouldn't, and that means that there's uncertainty with how we're hearing God's voice, we shouldn't phrase our words without having some uncertainty also. We shouldn't phrase them as definite truths. Third thing I want to say, this, and this flows out of this, the Bible talks a lot about interpreting or testing prophetic words. Meaning that when we give someone a word, it, should, it shouldn't just be accepted as from God. It should be go through a testing or an interpreting process. And we get some crazy weird ideas of how to do this. Like one that I always hear is like if I'm trying to give a prophetic word to Dave, then Will will come over and I'll share the word to Dave. And then Will will kind of like intercept it. Okay, is that from God or not? Yes, it is. Okay, Dave, you have to receive this word now. And okay, I guess I have to receive it. You know, doesn't it make a whole lot more sense that if I have a prophetic word for Dave, I say, Hey Dave, this is what I think God is saying. What do you think? And let the person receiving the word be the one to test it and interpret it. And so with that said, um, this, uh, this election word, it doesn't really seem to hit on a lot of the core things that I see in biblical prophecy. In fact, to me, it seems like it might violate some of the principles that we see for scripture. And so with that said, I would be extremely weary of prophetic words that are given in that context. Let's just stick to the basics, encourage, comfort, and strengthen when we prophesy. Let's give those words in humility and let's allow the person to decide whether they want to receive it or not. That's what I'd say about that. Next question. Will and I are going to answer this together, kind of. Uh, Regarding the gifts of the Holy Spirit, why are there different lists? One list has five gifts, another seven, and another nine. Why is this? I'm going to stop there and uh, just talk about this for a second. Those three portions of Scripture would be 1 Corinthians 12, where the nine gifts of the Holy Spirit are listed. Then there's another 
list of gifts in Romans 12 and another one in Ephesians 4. And in asking about the difference between the two, what we see are there are two primary categories of giftings or you know, special abilities that we see in the New Testament. And in talking about the difference between these two categories, the question we're really going to answer is, do all believers get to function in all these giftings or are some for them and some not for them? Okay. Anyone ever prayed for healing before it didn't work and then wonder, man, I guess I just don't have the gift of healing. This is the question that we're kind of going to get at. And so when we look in the Bible, what we see are, I'm a whiteboard kind of a guy, so I'm going to bring this down here and kind of illustrate. We look in the scriptures, we see two different kinds of giftings. First kind are called gifts of the spirit. These are the ones that are talked about in 1 Corinthians 12. And they say they are given by the Holy Spirit to believers. Second category of gifting are called gifts of ministry. These are talked about primarily in Ephesians 4 and in Romans 12. And these are given by, Paul says they are given by Jesus. Gifts of the Spirit given by the Holy Spirit. Gifts of ministry given by Jesus. And so in the gifts of the Spirit, some of these would be um, healing and prophecy. I'm not going to write any more for the sake of time. But word of knowledge, word of wisdom, tongues, faith, signs and wonders, etc. Okay? In gifts of ministry, this is... Uh, The the famous Ephesians 4 passage talks about the gift of being an apostle, a prophet, an evangelist, a shepherd, or a teacher. Or an acronym that a lot of you might know is APEST. That's funny? Oh, that's cool. (laughs) I guess a pest, I see now. (laughs) Sometimes those evangelists can feel like pests. Go out and do evangelism, you know. Okay, Apest. Um, as I reel us back in here. So we got two different categories of giftings. Now, here's the difference between the two. First, the gifts of the Spirit are given situationally. Meaning that they're not owned by believers. They are given to us by the Holy Spirit in certain situations when we need them. So, for example, if I am praying for Dave and Dave has got a bum shoulder, what gift do you think he needs? Healing, right? And so, when we understand it this way, I'm not gifted in healing. That's not what it means when it says that um, one is the gift of healing. What it means is that I'm getting, say that Will is the Holy Spirit, okay? The Holy Spirit has got the gift of healing represented by that marker in his hand. And then he chooses me to give it to Dave, and now Dave is receiving this gift of healing. Okay? So, yay. You just got healed. Or, if Dave really needed to hear a word from God, then the Holy Spirit would give me a prophetic word, and I would pass it along to Dave. I don't own this. I'm merely a a transfer agent 
of the gift the Holy Spirit wants to give to Dave. They're situational. Gifts of ministry, on the other hand, are more to do with who we are. They are, you might call them constitution, or, uh, yeah, constitutional giftings. And so, for these giftings, say that I have the gift of teaching. I don't just get that gift in certain situations. I am a teacher. And say I were to become an atheist and completely abandon God, I probably could still teach pretty well. I could probably be a teacher. I could probably teach this. I could probably teach that. And so that gifting is not something that is given situationally. It's something that is a part of who I am. And so if, I, if we look at the other categories of giftings, say I were to do the same thing, abandon the faith, and no longer call myself a Christian, no longer say I believe in God, I don't really think healing would really have much use for me in the secular world. Tongues is not going to help me out at all. But an evangelist, I bet you they'd be the best salesman that you've ever seen. You know? So the point is, these giftings, no, we don't all have these. They're a part of who we are. Got Jesus, who is the head of the body of Christ, gives some to some believers and some to others. These giftings, since we don't own them, we all, as Holy Spirit-filled believers, have the ability to see all nine of these giftings flow through us. Okay? So... All right, so the second, second part of that question, who knows that Luke needs a gift of handwriting, first of all. But uh, just kidding. I said that joke first service, and it was so funny I had to say it again. Felt, felt kind of bad the second time, though. I love you, Luke. All right. Why are some gifts better than others? Well, that's not what the Bible says. It doesn't say some are better. It says to especially, pro, to especially pursue certain ones. And I think Paul's heart there is that um, prophetic words and hearing God's voice is something we always want to be doing. It's something that is always useful. It's always timely. It's always important. Whether you're sick or not, whether you need a word from God or not, you know, whether you need a miracle or not, a word from him always is a good thing. So I think that's, that's what the... Um, Part of the heart of that question is, why does it say to especially pursue the gift of prophecy? It's because prophetic ministry is God always wants to communicate. You know, he's, he's, he's a relational being. He wants to communicate with us. Second part of that question, why do believers receive specific gifts, but all believers are called to develop those traits? So this goes back to, this goes back to Luke's, um, what, what Luke just explained about gifts of ministry and how some are given as apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers. And one thing I want to say is that's not like a superhero special Christian that gets one of the, that is gifted in that way. Everyone in this room is hardwired one of those directions. Okay. So it's not like the people that are on the stage can be apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. No, the body of Christ, everyone that has Christ in them, that's born again, has a leaning in one of those directions and is hardwired to be one of those. When you really look at uh, the scripture and what Paul's saying, but, um, all believers are called to develop these traits, even though some receive them, you know, Jesus was all of those. Okay. Jesus was the best apostle that ever lived most effective evangelist, best prophet, shepherd and teacher ever, right? Bar none. Who are we trying to be like? Trying to be like Jesus, right? So no one like escapes the role of evangelism because they're not an evangelist. 
It's like, no, I should still pursue and want to grow in that area because I want to be like Jesus. Same thing with um, a prophet or a teacher, a shepherd, an apostle. If that's not how you're hardwired, that's okay. That's probably not where you're going to get the most life and the number one thing you're going to do all the time. But we all want to strive to be like Jesus and take the next step in looking more like him. And he looked like all that stuff. Awesome. Thank you, guys. Um, another question I think we can answer quickly here. Hebrews 9.27. It um, says, it's appointed unto men once to die. This is something I, I spoke about, I think just last week. It, it came up in a message. And this question came, what about people who die on the operating table, come back, and are different people? Uh, they'll die more than once. My question is this. If theology appears to not match the experience, does that mean that God sometimes rewrites the word? How does one explain the contradiction? So uh, the contradiction being that some people have died twice or three times. And how do you explain that? And uh, the answer to that would be that uh, Jesus raised people from the dead. The widow, uh, widow's son on one occasion, a guy named Lazarus who had been dead for four days on another occasion was raised from the dead. And the writer of Hebrews knew that when he wrote Hebrews. And so he wasn't writing something that contradicted what Jesus had done. What he meant by die was you get to live once and there comes a point when you with finality leave this life. And so if you died on the operating table and you came back, yeah, we would say you died and, and came back to life. Uh, but what, what the writer of Hebrews is saying is there's an end to life in this planet. There's an end to life. And, and it does come. And once it comes, then it goes on to talk about what happens next. But then the, the, uh, the real question here is that if theology or biblical theology contradicts someone's experience, what's the answer to that? And I'd say there are a few different possible answers. One is we could be misreading and misinterpreting the Bible. Like there are people that believe the gift of tongues is not alive today. And so if I tell them, well, I pray in tongues, they're going to say, oh, you're being, you're, you're crazy. You're, you're making that up. Uh, you're being deceived or something like that. When really they're not reading the Bible correctly. And so um, it could be that. It could be we're misinterpreting our experience. You know, maybe, maybe I didn't get that experience. Maybe I'm looking back on it and I'm remembering things about it that aren't really right. And it doesn't really contradict, you know, what the Bible teaches. Or it could be that we are actually wrong and we are being deceived somehow spiritually. But um, like Dave was talking earlier, you don't want to get down rabbit holes. And that is a rabbit hole. And we can be assured, Jesus said that he said, if you being evil, evil human beings, fallen human beings, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those that ask him? So if I'm asking for the Holy Spirit, I don't need to be afraid that there's going to be some demon that pushes him aside and jumps in his place and, 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 and gets access to me. So I don't have to be, I don't want to get down that rabbit hole of fear, but uh, that, that sometimes is a possibility. And here's the real short answer. Biblical truth doesn't change. The Bible is, is complete. It gives us everything that we need to know in regarding godliness. That's what the Bible itself says. 
And so God's not changing truth. Truth does not change. There is absolute truth. It is revealed through the Bible. If my experience contradicts the Bible, then I need to go back and look at my experience. And at the very least, I might just need to shrug my shoulders and say, I don't know. But the Bible is the foundation for everything. It is true, and we rest in it. So hope that answers that. Thank you. You thought that we were finished. That's why you're clapping. Yeah. We are finished. But I have one question I can answer in 30 seconds, okay? Uh, in Luke 14, 26, the Bible talks about the cost of following Jesus. It t- talks uh, of hating your mom, father. Can you explain this verse? And what Jesus is using there is a form of speech called hyperbole. Like if uh, you want to make a point with one of your kids and you say, I've told you a million times to clean your room. We all know you didn't tell them a million times. You're just trying to, you're blowing the whole thing up to emphasize it. And so when Jesus says things like, if your eye offends you, rip it out of your head. Or if your hand offends you, just cut it off. You know, he's using hyperbole. He's saying, look, it's so important that you have your eyes look at the right things that it's just really, 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 really important. And so when he says here, hate your mother and father, he's, he's saying, you know, compared to your commitment to God, you know, that, that commitment looks like something so far inferior that it could be described as hatred. He's not saying hate your parents, okay? It's just an illustration. It could be evidenced by this. God calls you to move to a new city. You just had, you just had your first baby, and your parents have been looking for a grandchild for years and years. You just had your, but God says, you got to move across the country. Are you going to say no to God and stay there for the sake of your parents? Or are you going to say yes to God and say, mom and dad, I love you. We'll come back and visit you. We will Skype. We'll do FaceTime, etc. but we're going. So that, that's, does that make sense? That's what he's talking about. He's not talking about hating your parents. So, okay. All right, guys, thank you very much for this. Yeah. All right, so that was fun, wasn't it? You got all four of us at once. Could you handle it? All right. So we're going to move into the worship part of our service now. I want to welcome the ushers to come on down to the front to get ready to receive the offering. You know, we really do believe here that uh, giving is part of worship. That's why we start this. That's why the, the first thing we do in worship is giving. So I'm going to say a quick prayer then. If you're the, the, the baskets are all the way on the left of each aisle. So if you're furthest on the left, if you could just reach down and grab that. It would be really helpful. But Father, I thank you for your goodness and your mercy. And I bless this offering in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you guys can go ahead and start passing it. So as we, uh, you know, get ready to worship, I just want to say that the part of what can happen when we give financially is it opens our heart up to receive more of God's blessing in our life. It opens our heart up to understand him better because money can be one of the things that we cling to and we look to for security instead of God sometimes. And so by doing this act of every Sunday, giving from, from the money you've made and, um, you know, offering it to God to, to support his kingdom and stuff. It's like saying, hey, God, I trust you more than my wallet. 
I trust you more than this. And I'm not driven by this, but I'm driven by you. So, Father, I just thank you for everyone in this room. I thank you for the generous hearts that are here. I bless um, all the families in this room. Thank you for amazing marriages. Thank you for amazing parenting skills. I pray that uh, you just use this church body as a place that um, gives wisdom and breakthrough to this whole region, this whole nation about finances. You'd use us to um, help people get out of debt and understand how to start businesses effectively. And uh, we just welcome your presence to be here as we worship. In Jesus' name, amen.